This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 94. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 94 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsleds.com. Focal Monitors, Universal Audio and Audio Technica. Great to be back with you, fresh off the heels of the 141st AES show uh, in Los Angeles. I am now back, been gone for a few days, wonderful time. While there, I interviewed Brad Wood over at the Focal booth. Hope you got to stream it, hope you got to see it. If not, no big deal. We are going to have that on as our 95th episode next week. So we'll bring that to you at that time. Nobody loses out here. Everybody gets to hear it. So very glad about that. But let's concentrate on today. Our guest is Scott Wiley from June Audio Recording Studios in, of all places, that we have never talked to anybody, Utah, Provo, Utah. It's the third largest metropolitan area in Utah. Scott's actually a Los Angeles transplant, went to USC, moved to Utah for a bit, moved back to Los Angeles, moved back to Utah, and he ended up staying and he runs a great studio there. And he's actually doing a lot of moving around, which we'll talk about in the interview. So you can check that out. So yeah, I saw many people at AES. And then I saw the guys over at Sonarworks. And I've talked about Sonarworks a lot in the past episodes, many, many episodes ago. So we've set up an affiliate link with Sonarworks. And the way that works is if uh, you click on the link and you try the software and you buy it, you get 10% off. And then Working Class Audio, of course, gets a little bit of a kickback to uh, help with our expenses here. So that's at no extra cost to you, helps out the website. So we win, you win, Sonarworks wins, everybody benefits in that equation. So, and if you're not familiar with their product, it is a, uh, a room correction software that you put on your stereo bus at the, at the tail end of the chain, and it helps correct the problems in your room that you hear and uh, make a reverse EQ curve that compensates for that. And then of course you turn it off when you print your mix. And I got to say, you know, a lot of people on, on the surface are a little suspicious of stuff like that. I got to say, I was one of those people. And then I tried it, made some mixes and those mixes translated better than ever. So I'm a convert and you may disagree with that concept of using that kind of room correction to do stuff. Uh, I think in concert with good acoustic treatment and a good room set up in a proper way. It's one link in the chain. It's not the entire solution, but it definitely helps. So on uh, the Working Class Audio website, you will find on the right-hand side, there is a link uh, to Sonarworks. And if you click on that, that will take you, of course, to the Sonarworks website and you can check it out for yourself, download a free copy to evaluate. To be honest with you, it works best if you just get a hold of uh, the whole package, which is the software and the little calibration mic. So if you're open to trying new stuff, give it a shot, see what you think. If you don't like it, no problem. If you do like it, fantastic. I hope it can help you. I'm very impressed with it. And speaking of affiliate links, uh, we've been having a conversation about Backblaze, which we do have an affiliate link on the Working Class Audio site just under the Sonarworks banner. And the conversation is, is um, a gentleman on Facebook uh, had responded to a post I made about Backblaze, telling everybody about it. And he had said that he had lost a bunch of stuff through another service. And that totally sucks. So my response to that was, you know, don't rely 
exclusively on a cloud-based service for your backup. Once again, you know, it's one part of the bigger picture. You know, just like I was saying with the Sonarworks thing, it's not the entire thing. It's one part. So the Backblaze thing can be one part of your backup strategy. Uh, in my case, I have a backup on a RAID, and that RAID is backed up to Backblaze. And then I have another RAID that is just a standalone RAID that's just on its own. So I have two local backups and then a cloud-based backup. So if one fails or two fails, you know, I'll be okay. The odds of all three failing, uh, a little more remote there. So that's just something to keep in mind. Really, really consider getting your backup strategy in place. Go to the banner just underneath the Sonarworks uh, banner on the Backblaze banner. Click on that. It's five bucks a month, really. And you can pay annually if you want. I think you'll save a little more if you do that. And I think for the peace of mind that it gives you, really good thing. You know, the other benefit, and this is to Mac users. I don't know about PC users because I'm mostly a Mac user. The trick is, is once you register the software and it's backing up the drives attached to your computer, it also tracks your computer. So if your computer's ever stolen and hooked up to the internet, it immediately logs in and starts trying to back up. And so you can locate your computer in the event of a theft. With laptops and such, of course, that's a little more common. So there, there it is. All right, well, uh, let's get into it. Let's start, uh, let's start our conversation. Let's have a chat here with Mr. Scott Wiley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So welcome to the podcast, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this. I'm under the impression that you are building a new studio. That's right. Yeah, we are actually, <laughs> you might be able to see behind me some two-by-fours. We're kind of in the middle of hanging up some RPG panels and stuff that we just had shipped out a couple days ago. We just moved out of a, a larger kind of purpose-built studio into kind of a temporary location as we build a new spot that we will own instead of lease, which is what we've been doing so far. On, the, on your website, it says you open in the spring of 2000. It's a little bit of a confusing thing, as I'm sure, it, I'm sure you understand. I mean, the, the studio itself and my career have been so intertwined and gone through so many iterations. I think I, think I have that on there because that's kind of when I started using the name June Audio, and that would, that would have been in L.A. And then we moved back up here and kind of moved into a location that somebody had built to be part of a film studio. That was a great spot. It was in a, in a real corporate office building, so a little vibeless as it, as it goes for you know, the outside. But once you got in the studio, it was nice, and you know, the AC was quiet, and the power was good, and all that, all that what you want. You know? Somebody spent way too much on it. But eventually, yeah. our landlords got to the point where they wanted us out. They wanted to turn it into office space. So as my lease was near ending, I still had another two years on it. But as it got close to ending, they offered kind of a buyout. Bu buyouts are great. Yeah. <laughs> we took that money and, and ran, as you can imagine. And then at that point, we began looking in earnest for a, uh, a new spot, found a new spot, had Wes show working on designs with us, had a full design done in the process with the banks doing the whole thing, and then got bought out of that place. <laughs> so it's been a runaround in a sense, but we've managed to stockpile a little more cash than we had, so that's been good. But it's put us behind, uh, so now we have a temp location for probably a good nine months, I would guess. Okay, interesting. Let's go back in time a bit because uh, right now you're in you're in Provo, Utah, right? That's right. Yeah, randomly enough. Did you grow up in Utah? 
I didn't. I grew up just outside of L.A. in a town called La Cunada, which is like 10 minutes north of downtown, right by Pasadena. Uh-huh. Grew up there, lived there and in L.A., up until I was about 22. I went to USC and got a Bachelor of Science in music recording there. One great thing about USC is they tell you kind of from day one to get internships. So I had a good internship or two kind of going all the way through college. Plus, I was in a band and using the school studio. So just a lot of experience. So by the time I got out of college, felt you know pretty comfortable and could get a job. It's kind of one of the things that I fight about the the music industry programs they have at colleges around here is that I really want want them to get their students involved in internships because it's just not enough to just go through school. Yeah, getting that real-world experience is uh, it's something that I didn't do because I I felt like I wanted to come in from a different angle. I always I always use the analogy, I want to uh, I don't want to come in from the bottom up. I want to helicopter in and drop in from the top. <laughs> well, who can blame you? That's a great idea. <laughs> so um, I'm curious, what what got you to Utah? Well, it is a bit of a random story. I had a good friend that played drums in a band I was in all growing up, you know, all from junior high and high school. He came up to Utah to go to BYU, and I was living at USC and I was working in Hollywood and I was just kind of getting a little burnt out on that. And when I would visit him up here, it was the kind of music scene that that I, as a fan of R.E.M. and I grew up just listening to so much uh, kind of college music and thought, man, I want to live in one of those towns that has a music scene like that. And I was in L.A. Obviously, there's a big music scene, but it's really spread out and fractured and when I would come up to Utah, I'd be so impressed with all these bands that knew each other and they had just this great network going. And so I, I really loved it. So at some point, I got in a band that got a record deal and that kind of fell apart. The end result was me with a little bit of cash and a little bit of an at studio and kind of feeling like I got to get out of LA for a little while. So I moved up to Utah and I rented like a storefront downtown, you know, where I just kind of lived and worked and built a little studio in it and planned on doing that for six months. And then as things go, you meet people and you get busier. And then I'm working at this studio and then my studio is a little busier and I kind of just stayed. I did a little bit of, you know, looking up information on Provo. What I didn't realize, it's the third largest city in the state of Utah, rather. For sure. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. It's fairly large, and it's a good, it's a college town, you know. Brigham Young University is there, right? That's right. Okay, and uh, for the for the listeners, if you're trying to find it on a map, it's 43 miles south of uh, Salt Lake City. Such a shift, I have to say, Los Angeles to Provo, Utah. That's right. The craziest part about my story is that you know I moved up to Utah as a single guy and kind of had this studio that kept growing. I get more and more clients, and then I'm working at various studios, and then bought this place and turned it into a real studio and and that kept growing and growing. And then finally, at some point, I just felt like stagnant, like work wasn't progressing. I was doing the same records with the same clients over and over again. I wasn't producing as much as I wanted to. And my wife and I, who are both from that area in California, just outside of LA, we thought, well, you know, we'd kind of landed here, but didn't mean to stay here. So let's move back. And so that was a good, gosh, that was, you know, six, uh, 15 years ago, something like that. Moved back to LA, kind of started over, had some friends help me get 
what I thought would what I expected to be some internships, but started assisting in studios around Hollywood again and kind of meeting people again. Started working at Sound Factory, which is owned by um, Sunset Sound. Worked there for a number of years, and then started getting some engineering jobs that took me out. A lot of Pro Tools jobs. It's interesting because. Career-wise, I'd say things were going as well as I could have expected or, you know, even better. I, I mm-hmm. was busy. I was working on big projects, and I was working with great people. But by that point, I did have two kids, and the just the schedule in L.A., and it just wasn't working for me. It, I was pretty miserable. It was that six, seven days a week, 14-hour days kind of thing. And I think at some point it hit me that, it wasn't really a um, thing of paying my dues. It was just kind of the schedule that everybody kept there, or at least the people I was working with. And having worked up here in Utah, I thought, you know, I could go back to Utah. I have clients. I have the ability to work there and kind of enjoy life a little bit more and maybe not be quite so in the rat race. And so I moved back. So yeah, it's a it's a strange situation to move from Hollywood to <laughs> Provo, Utah to do music, but it's worked out well for us. And we, we stay busy. The, the hours can be, you know, the same as LA, but maybe it's, it's a different situation where we're kind of in charge of our schedules a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So many variables there to compare between Hollywood and Provo. (laughs) Sure are. (laughs) Well, I mean, so, I mean, just, uh, let's just talk about it from a a perspective of uh, logistics of just getting around. Okay. So, I mean, it's, you know, you have more traffic, I would assume, in Hollywood compared to Provo. Yeah, certainly. And when you have kids and uh, you have tight schedules, you're trying to shift back and forth between work and and home and kids in school. And, you know, just the act of carrying out the day-to-day can be a challenge. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I you know, in working in L.A., I felt like... It was between projects and the occasional Sunday where I was kind of dad. But otherwise, I was up and out before they were really getting going, and I was home well after everybody was in bed. Gosh, it just kind of, it just was, it just was aggravating. And the truth is that having the family stop by a session that's not your session, where you're not the producer, I mean, that's not really, you know, you can't do that. And so, you know, here I see my family a lot. They'll stop by. Certainly the clientele is a little more relaxed about things. The stakes aren't nearly as high usually. And so it's just more family friendly. The The, the interesting thing to me, having worked, so I worked in LA, I moved here, I worked here, I moved back to LA, I moved back. So I've been able to compare working in both places a lot. And it it's always been interesting to me that really there's no magic there versus here. Uh, I think the biggest difference, you know, c- certainly uh, you have, maybe you've got more access to a bunch of 47s than you do here. But the truth is that we ju- you just have more time. If you have a larger budget, you just have more time. So when I was working on albums, we'd have a month or two months, uh, at least when I was there. Uh, that might've changed now. But up here, we have a week or two. So we got to move quick. Interesting. And there's some key points, though, I think that help your situation there that I'm I'm looking at here on the screen. Uh, first of all, as we said before, Brigham Young University is there, so it's a college town. Yep. Provo was the second city in the United States to work with Google Fiber. 
That's right. Yeah. I have Google Fiber here and just moved into this spot. We just had Google Fiber. I have it at home, but we just got it hooked up here at the studio. And we, I mean, we've got almost a gig upload and download. So oh my God. It's, it's pretty awesome. And it's, you know, it's 70 bucks a month or something. So it, it's, it's pretty great. We can, we can, I downloaded this new uh, thing from Omnisphere, this Keyscapes plugin. It's like 80 gigs. I downloaded it in like 12 minutes. Oh my gosh. So it's kind of awesome that way. Uh, in 2010, Forbes rated Provo one of the top 10 places to raise a family. Additionally, in 2013, uh, Forbes ranked Provo the number two city on its list of best places for business and careers. It's also ranked for community optimism, volunteerism, business and careers, health and well-being. It's It sounds very fascinating. And these are things I don't think that people really take into account sometimes when you're setting up shop or you're choosing a city to live in, what is going on outside of the studio and how that impacts the studio itself. I mean, my favorite thing about living here, and I've been in bands here, I end up playing out live a lot. Um, I certainly know a lot of the musicians and other artisans around town. And it's a very conservative space place but the truth is that the art community is really strong and that kind of counters it in in some sense and doesn't feel quite as restrictive as it might be viewed from outside but like my wife puts on a a very popular concert series downtown and we get really involved with the community and try to and and the the great thing about living somewhere where it's not quite so expensive is we do feel a little more flexibility in terms of being able to take that time to help out, to do things free, to, you know, sponsor the local battle of the bands and give away free studio time to whatever it is. I mean, frankly, I wish I could just operate my studio for free for everybody. I mean, I just, I love doing it and I, and I don't do it to make a lot of money. As I'm sure, you know, there's, there's not necessarily a lot of money to be had in, in local bands, but I try to give them the best that we can get. We try to, make it really pro. And I think that I bring something from having worked in LA where maybe the pressure's on a little bit more, the stakes are a little bit higher in terms of just, you know, I want it treated as great art, even when sometimes it might not be, but I think we should take it just as seriously. And we've had some success come out of Provo. And we have a a number of bands over the last few years that have gone on to, to success. I mean, the most successful of which would be Imagine Dragons who started here and played the local club and still come back and play, but a, but a number of other bands that have kind of made their way out. And it's a great music scene. I think people would be surprised to find that it's probably one of the better music scenes in the country. I, I want to talk a little bit about that. You know, I, and, and I certainly wouldn't want to alienate anybody uh, for their views, but um, I'm curious how the juxtaposition of, I mean, Brigham Young University and, and, and Utah in general is known for the, the Mormon religion, of course. And of course, if you look at the, the demographic breakdown in 2000, the LDS church, in terms of looking at religions, took, made up approximately 98%. And that's in direct contrast to, say, Catholicism at 1.1%. Oh, sure. And so I'm just citing numbers here. So from the outside and not being a very religious person, you know, my view of the Mormon religion is that it is somewhat of a conservative religion. And I don't have any experience with how that living in a place like that, if that presents any challenges for you as a studio owner, a guy who's come from Hollywood, 
how do you make sure everybody gets along and making sure you're making everybody feel welcome? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing because as we've had bands with more success, we've had more people kind of coming in from outside. We've had producers traveling up from LA to work with Neon Trees, for instance. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit of a culture shock for them and trying to, uh, to kind of I help them adapt. <laughs> you know, there's not uh it's hard it's there's not a Starbucks on every corner. Most of the thing most businesses are closed on Sundays. It the town goes to sleep pretty well at 10 and p.m. So it it's definitely uh, an unusual place in that way. I'm uh I am Mormon and joined the church when I was in my last year of college at USC and that wasn't why I came. It was no sort of pilgrimage back to where Mormons are. It was just, I had a lot of contacts here. Right. But the religion informs everything. That's that's not to say that we work on Christian music all the time. It's far from it. But it just kind of, it's pervasive, you know, and, and in in good and bad. I think that you, you know, you, you cited the city being high on the list for volunteerism. I think a lot of that comes from the church yep. and from service that the, the members of the church provide. At the same time, being on the artistic side of things can mean you feel a little on the fringes of things. And a lot of, while most people probably do come here because of the church or they're members of the church or they come to BYU because they're Mormon, a lot of the musicians kind of end up drifting away from the church uh, for one reason or another. I've always felt like I have a good ability to just kind of be amenable and friendly with anybody. I I really don't care as long as people are kind and nice. And, you know, I really want people to work with people who are trying to do their best uh-huh. at whatever they are. But I don't care what religion or what anything. Yeah. So hopefully I'm a good bridge between that because we certainly have – the truth is, as as we're building a new studio, a lot of people say, as as you would expect them to, this is a crazy time to be building a big studio. Uh, the music industry is X, Y, Z. And I say, that is absolutely true. But my main clients are independent bands and the Mormon church. And that comes in a number of avenues, whether it's albums that they kind of sponsor through a bookstore that they own um, called Deseret Book, and they put out religious albums, or we do a lot of, you know, music for BYU TV, which is just a regular TV channel, nothing necessarily religious about that. Well, the church isn't going away and local bands never had money to begin with. So, I mean, you know, like local bands are always going to come up with money to record, whether it's, you know, we see a lot more mixing these days, but local bands always come up with money by borrowing it and scrapping for it. And the church has money as an institution. So, we're only getting busier while the music industry might be heading down. Any community needs audio, period. Right. There sure. are needs. And whether it's and there are entertainment needs, there are educational needs. And you happen to be a guy who comes from the entertainment capital of the world. It seems like common sense that for you to open up a studio in a place that needs audio and there's going to be bands. There's going to be, like you say, the church needs audio. The, everybody needs it. And as you as you cited, it's one of these places that's really exploding for the tech industry. So you have a lot of big companies like Adobe and you know these big companies moving here, and a lot of startups. It's like this startup capital, and the you know companies need a lot of audio. So there's there's just a lot of recording to do. I mean, I, frankly, 
we're moving from one studio to two because I could have booked three studios a few months ago. I, we just, I was just turning down work all over the place. That's amazing. And it's, a, it's a, it's a jump. Um, and it's going to be a big sea change that I have to figure out how to, you know, when it's not just all on me, but I have a great team of engineers and I've kind of been working them in as much as possible. And, you know, I'm really optimistic about it. The truth is we closed shop about, oh, about a month and a half ago to move to this temp location. And we're really getting close to being open, but this is a much smaller space um, until we have the new studios built. But boy, I'm already feeling like there's a, a bit of a void around here that we left because we had a larger space. We had a lot of gear. We had a lot of instruments. You know, if I want to go track drums, there's a number of great studios around, but I still feel like I'd have to bring a lot of drums or I'd have to bring a rack of gear. I'd have to bring some mics. So I'm hoping that that void that I'm sensing really exists and that it's something that we can we will fill once again. There's just a lot of business going on. There's a lot of growth in the area. And it used to be that Provo was dwarfed by Salt Lake, you know, just in terms of size and also industry. We're kind of seeing a lot of growth south of Provo that kind of, you know, Provo becomes a bit more of a hub and they're an hour apart. So it's, it's you know, it's not insignificant travel time. So is there an airport in Provo? There is actually a small airport in Provo, but you know, truthfully, the the flights in and out are pretty limited. Okay, uh, it's cheap as can be, but uh, you know, it's like if you want to go to L.A., you're kind of a, looking at a Thursday or Sunday route. So it's really all through Salt Lake, but that's only a 45 minute drive or so. So most people do come in and out of Salt Lake. All right, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Scott Wiley, but we are going to take a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio Technica. Just a reminder, there is an Artist Series rebate going on for Artist Series microphones, and that is, of course, located on the right-hand side of the Working Class Audio site. There it says Artist Series rebates. You click on that. That will take you over to the Audio Technica website, and that will lay it all out for you. They're doing $30, $20, and $15 rebates across a, a range of mics in that series. If you make a purchase uh, before December 31st, 2016, you are eligible and there is a link and details. Everything is there for you on that page to lay it all out. So to make sure, make sure you get your rebate, regardless of whether or not you're buying an artist series mic or not, make sure you head on over to the Audio Technica website. That's at audio-technica.com. Have a look around. They have many different products, as you well know. So Let's get back into it here with Scott Wiley on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Okay, so here's here's a question for you, and and I'm not trying to be funny here, but so the the Mormon religion is known to not be a consumer of caffeine. You know, it's an unusual thing. <laughs> There's a lot of us here trying to figure this out because, truthfully, the the people that hang out in the studio a long time and work these kind of hours, we do a lot of caffeine. The truth is, even as a member of the church, I'm a little unclear on the church's stance. Really, the church's stance seems to be uh, against coffee and tea and certainly alcohol, but not necessarily caffeinated drinks. So I, I'm i not sure I'm the best spokesman to be able to explain that one because I'm a fairly well-addicted Diet Coke drinker. <laughs> And that's got a lot, fair amount of caffeine in it. Coffee shops are hard to come by around here, for sure. You know, we have our Starbucks and stuff, but it's not on every corner. <laughs> well, g- going to Provo to open up a, a coffee shop would be a horrible idea. <laughs> it would probably be bad business. The truth is that when we get out of town clients, 
we have to do a little bit of schooling with the engineers as far as like, here's how you make some good coffee, you know? Like, I have no, I don't have a stance on those kind of things. I, you're not going to get judged by me or anybody who works for me for anything, whether they're Mormon or not. So we're happy to make a pot of coffee, but we're just, on our staff, there'd be one person who is kind of not not LDS and is going to be joining you. And so the rest of us are novices. Right, know? right. So there's no uh, bar- baristas, former baristas in the group. That's right. There are not. There okay. Are not. But, you, you know, on the, on the flip side, you also won't have to deal with anybody with any drug issues. So maybe that's, maybe it, it evens out. <laughs> now there's, there's some definite bonuses I can think of. So as far as your approach to business and your approach to, I mean, you listen to the show, right? I do. I listen all the time. Okay. So, you know, I always ask about, you know, money and gear and finances. What are the rules of the road for you to stay in business? Sure. Well, the truth is that so far in my career, I've had a wife with a, she's a software engineer and she has a great job and she has benefits. And Frankly, the studio is where it's at now because of her support and my ability to spend a little more on gear because we have that other income. Things are going to change with this new studio because things are going to be a little tighter and the nut's going to be a little bit bigger. And so I am starting to approach it differently. So far, you know, we've had kind of a, kind of a 10% on gear rule, you know, in, in, in a way, although I also spend a fair amount of time doing something that is a lot easier in Utah than it is in larger cities, which is find gear cheap, you know, find vintage guitars and things. And if we don't want them for the studio, resell them and make a little money that way. So I do a, I do a fair amount of that kind of picking where I'll either end up with some good treasures for the studio, uh, which I love. I mean, I just love having instruments around as a musician and as kind of a proprietor for other musicians. I love having those instruments that could kind of um, be an inspiration for for parts. If we find something, you know, I just found a, a Whirly recently for like a hundred bucks and we've got a Whirly. So I was able to make 1100 bucks on a Whirly, you know, like that. I come upon those kind of things often. So that's another good source of income. But it also, you know, we, I'm not a drummer, but I have multiple drum sets and a lot of snares and things. And it's just, I'm constantly kind of searching around for those things. And frankly, in a, in a market or an area like this, you end up with a lot of people who have things stored under their beds and we can find them. Mm-hmm. As far as the business goes, I'm transitioning from treating it like my career and I also have a lot of gear to the studio is its own entity mm-hmm. and I work for the studio in a sense and that is tricky. It's one of the things I was emailing you about. Like, we're kind of going through this transition to where we're going to two studios, really three. I'm going to have to learn that, learn how to have a studio manager and pay for a studio manager and learn how to um, have a budget that's really set because I need to have my income, but so do the other engineers. And and I haven't really dealt with that. I've been um, I've been fascinated and listened a few times to your podcast with John Vanderslice because I love his approach to things. I wish that I had the 
ability to have such a hard line, you know, as far as analog gear and working processes that he does. I don't necessarily feel that liberty, but but I do love his approach to business and just his passion for it is is you know infectious and that kind of notion of having a staff that you have to take care of is going to be a new thing cuz mm-hmm. so far it's been kind of an hourly assistant thing or an intern thing but now I'm going to have to have other engineers I'm one interesting thing I've found in Utah this might exist in other small areas I can't speak to that but certainly is in contrast to somewhere like LA is the studios tend to be tied to somebody so my studio has my gear this is where I work all the time and around town you've got Dan's studio and Mike's studio and all these other places. And you go there if you want to work with that person. Whereas in LA, the studios kind of exist and producers, engineers float through as need demands. Uh, we need a, we need a big room. So let's go over to Conway and we need a small, cool rock room. Let's go over to sound factory and whatever it is. And I want to change the thinking around here to be a little bit more like that. I, I know so many talented producers who can run pro tools all day long, but they're not really engineers. So They either build their own home studios to the point where they can do everything they need to do, or they come into a studio and use an engineer. And I've kind of been trying to show them that the truth is with a talented assistant, they can, they can do guitar overdubs all day long. They use all our amps and all our guitars and save money and use the studio. And I'm trying to get this word out and bring people in and show them that, Hey, we have really talented assistants who can patch, get stuff patched for you, show you how the room works. Uh, if you if you want to mic a set of drums, I can come in and mic the set of drums, and I'll take across, I'll go across the hall and mix all day, you know. And it's a little bit of a shift for thinking around here, but I think it's vital to having a studio with two rooms exist because mm-hmm. I just can't be in all the places, you know. I got to say, if you have an opportunity, the show that's out now with David Barbie from Athens, Georgia, who runs Chase Park Transduction. Is that the one that just came out Monday? Yes. Okay. I got to hear that one. I haven't listened to that one yet. Yeah. You got to check him out. He is really, he's great. And and it's funny too, because when you listen to it, you think you're listening to Matthew McConaughey talk. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's totally <laughs> funny. Well, your your podcast has been awesome. I've I've been turning all my engineers onto it. You know, we had a good week and a half of sitting in my garage and repinning Elkos and and you know cutting cable and because we kind of were, I didn't want to cut any cable down because I wanted to save it all for our future studio. But we needed to repurpose everything because we changed consoles into this temp space and everything. And so I just put your podcast on. We just let it run all day. I've heard all of them multiple times, and it's really great. I mean, I just I think it's. I think it's really invaluable for for people to listen to, especially for guys just starting out to kind of get a realistic take on what they're getting into. My apologies in advance for all the language that your children <laughs> might encounter on my podcast. Oh, they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting. So when all is said and done in, let's say, a year, two years, ultimately, will you Will you have one place or two places? I'm confused. So, yeah, it's a little confusing. So we bought, you know, I could go into just the number of things that would make your head spin about this, but we have now purchased for the second time this old home in downtown Bravo that we owned before as a studio. Now we've bought it again. We're rehabbing it again. And we have plans to build a large, more modern building that attaches to the back. So in the end, we will have two new 
ground up West Lachaux designed studios that will both have mixing room or control rooms, tracking rooms and booths. One will have three booths. The other will probably just have one to begin with. And then they will kind of wrap around and attach to an old house built in 1904 that we're in currently. And that we will rent kind of as a production room. So we have a local producer who's interested now, and hopefully he will be. But if not, there's a number of people around. But that will be more of the space we're in now is kind of like a studio shoved into an old house rather than built as a studio, if that makes sense. Totally. Oh, yeah. We didn't build windows in and stuff, but Wes designed panels for us and ceiling clouds for us. And I think it'll be a good sounding space. It's just not quite purpose built, if that makes sense. So you got to turn off the heater when things are, you know, things are going and that kind of stuff. But we've got it all on balanced power. It's real clean. It looks great. It's got a good vibe to it. So eventually it's kind of three studios, but one, I won't really run as much as just rent on a monthly basis. Okay. Can you tell me about your experience interacting with Wes and and how did that process go along? Like contacting him because I know he's in North Carolina. Yeah, he's in North Carolina from Gear Sluts. I just started seeing his name pop up a lot. There's a lot of designers out there. There's a lot of the guys that are really flashy that you know, you would know of, and their studios are really, you know, super, super high end. And frankly, I just, I think Wes is so good at his job. I'm sure he can do anything, but he also seemed based on his designs to be a guy that would be willing to work with somebody who doesn't have a budget like those studios. And so I, this is years ago now, maybe three years ago, I contacted Wes and said, I'm dying to build a studio and you're the guy I want to build it. And I've read everything about every studio you've built. And I read those build threads and I, I love doing that kind of research anyway. So he was really, really kind and willing to talk and go over things and has been invaluable as far as just kind of how, where's the, where are the corners we should cut and where are the corners we shouldn't cut? And We've had him out to Provo two times now. One time one time was the previous building I told you about that we were kind of moving on. Another time was another building, and Wes showed up. I was so excited about this big building. Wes showed up, and, I mean, literally the first time I met him, 10 minutes had not gone by, and he said, this building won't work. We're not doing a studio here. <laughs> and I was kind of heartbroken because we had this studio, we had this big building under contract, and we had flown Wes out for the whole thing. But then I was also able to spend that weekend driving around with him. And he showed me some more appropriate spots to be looking at. And, you know, this is what you're looking for. Find a place like this. Don't look here. And and that was also really helpful. And, you know, frankly, in the end, even though it was a kind of bit of a costly turn, what are we paying him for? But to tell us what to do. Right. <laughs> you know, the poor guy's gone through it with me on a number of buildings now. And we're a good two maybe almost three years into our relationship. But, you know, I just talked to him this morning. I was asking him, hey, we're hanging these panels. Where should we put this? How? Where do you want us to start with the speakers? And he's always been there uh, for those questions. And he and his wife, Lisa, run a tight ship. And then the another great thing that happened is, I'm sorry, I talk so much, but another great thing that happened is I had the ability to go back east in January. So I went back, flew to New York, toured a great studio there that he had designed, then flew down to North Carolina, toured a few studios with Wes in North Carolina, and then went down to South Carolina a few 
uh, toured a few more. So I was able to take my own music, sit in those rooms, listen to music in them, get a sense for how they felt, kind of get it to the point where I could speak Les's language a little bit better, you know, and and know what he meant and how it felt. Because that's really big deal to me is just kind of the feeling in the rooms. And I got to tell you, I just have never been in control rooms that sounded so good. I mean, they were remarkable. And I'm not in an area that is um, flush with studio designers. So um, <laughs> so it was really great to go and have that experience. And And gosh, I mean... If I wasn't sold before that trip, which I was, uh, I sure would have been afterwards. Because I, I, I mean, I'm sitting in control rooms where they are just using the main monitors in the walls, and I'm just thinking, why would you need any? I mean, I'm used to barefoots, you know. I'm used to to near fields, like everybody is. And these studios, most of the owners had said said to me, we don't even bother with our near fields. We just need the mains. That's how good the control room is. And that's kind of an amazing thing. I mean, it's a kind of a it's a little bit of a leap of faith. I keep telling Wes, "Hey, I'm keeping these, keeping barefoots in the budget because I'm really used to them." And Wes says, "Get rid of those barefoots. We need that money. <laughs> you know, we don't need those things. We're not going to need them." And uh, and it, that's a leap of faith for sure to try to think about that. But the other thing is that Wes puts his uh, monitors at ear level. So they're not up above the window. They're kind of down. Yeah. So if you want to have near fields at all, you got to have those sound anchor stands that raise and lower. And those are, those cost a fortune. Yeah, they do. So it's kind of like, uh, maybe we'll just try this with just the mains. But yeah, I believe in the guy. He knows what he's talking about. He can be, he's a real straight shooter. And that can be difficult to get, to u- get used to because he does not um, sugarcoat things. And I've really come to appreciate that but when you have to bring him bad news about the budget, it also can be a little difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Are you like the only game in town or are there other guys or gals? There are there are other guys. There are not many gals. I have an assistant who is I have a female assistant who is awesome and and it's interesting that on a session recently, a female client said to me, her name's Marin, and a female client said to me, it's so nice to have Marin around. And she's really pleasant. I mean, she's awesome. She can run a session, the whole thing. But I think also even just having that kind of female energy in the in the studio is great. It, it There's something different about it. But yeah, there's a number of people around. There's a number of studios. Most of the studios are attached to people's homes, which is a great business model and a very logical choice and probably one, not probably, let's not say probably, hopefully one that I don't regret not making. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Attach it to your home. Where my home is, we don't have the space for it. And I don't love working at home. I have a really hard time switching gears from kids to music and back to kids. I like to focus and have it feel like I'm in a space dedicated to focusing on music. So it probably wasn't, wouldn't have been a great choice for me, but at the same time, going out on a limb, building a studio of this nature uh, is, you know, well, it is just that it's going out on a limb. I, there's a lot of studios around that have been built kind of in this model. That's like a guy who's wealthy and a musician Mm -hmm. and kind of wants to get into the business. And so he, there's a studio in Salt Lake that was built like this, that was, um, designed by that studio, Bauton, I think you pronounce it, really expensive design firm. It's beautiful. And it just kind of, when you have that, when you don't have somebody in there who's like, I have to make this work for my very survival, they tend to not last very long. 
we might be one of the few that's on this that will be on this scale that's just a guy kind of bootstrapping it. I mean, what do you think the keys to survival are? I mean, because let's face it. I mean, like you said, a lot of studios that uh, are in that position, they only last for so long. I was in this position myself, as, as you have heard on the show. So I have in your show, like I'll listen to one show where a guy's building a studio and it's like, oh, it's so awesome. And then another show where it's like, man, the worst thing I ever did was build a studio <laughs> and, and all this while I'm building a studio. So, but I know, I know how that is. I mean, I've owned a studio for a long time and I, I hope for the best. And in, in some sense, I think we are successful because there's fewer people around we're one of the only studios that has a lot of gear, not just, you know, a lot of microphones, but a lot of instruments. I have a lot of guitars. We've got a lot of cool keyboards, a lot of cool drums. That's exciting for musicians. But also, I treat it, I I think I treat it really professionally. I have a hard time, like, with any sort of, I don't know if it's boasting, but talking about myself. But I treat it really professionally. I'm the guy who will stay all night to get your project done. And if you have a deadline, like I make it happen. And if I say I'm going to be there at nine, I'm there at nine. So that works well for all clients, but it helps. It enables us to have corporate clients who can rely on us for those kind of deadlines and sticking to budgets. And we have uh, young bands and musicians who dig the fact that we've got a gold top Les Paul. You know what I mean? So. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of instruments, so somebody could come in from out of town and not bring anything with them. Absolutely, yeah. We, we've got a ton of stuff, and we've had a, that happen a lot. The truth is that even the local kind of studio drummers, after a while, tend to not bring anything but their own cymbals because they know we've got a good selection, we keep them up, we've got heads here if they need them, and um, you know, things like that. Like I, I welcome anyone to bring their instrument, but I make sure that we've got what we need to make a great record. And, and, you know, I learned a long time ago, as everyone does at some point that, you know, if, if you want it to sound a certain way, it's pretty rare. You can get there just through EQ and some plugin. I mean, if you want it to sound like a, an old silver tone guitar and you start with a, you know, a Les Paul or something that doesn't have those real microphonic pickups and stuff, it's really hard to get there. There's no amount of knobs I can turn. Let's just grab an old silver tone guitar off the wall and that's the other thing I've learned is that I can have a guitar that is not a great guitar to play live. I mean, it's, you know, it goes out of tune and it's funky and it doesn't feel great, but it has this, makes this, you know, unbelievable sound. Mm -hmm. And I can get, I can pick that guitar up for 150 bucks used and it's a totally useful studio tool. I don't need to have a bunch of real high end guitars to make a great record. If you wanted to go play it live, that would be really difficult because it's kind of a piece of crap. But it sounds, it makes this one amazing sound. And if it makes one amazing sound, then there's a home for it here, you know? Talk to me about zoning and permits and community support. Do you face any challenges in that department? We are in an old house, but we are right downtown. So the truth is on either side of us are businesses. So we are in the commercial zone. And in our new build, it's actually working for us because we can build right to the property line being downtown. So we we have less in terms of parking or uh, requirements because there's parking garages around us and there's street parking and we can have more space on our lot. So we found this old home that has a duplex behind it and the lot itself is is fairly large. So we can tear down the duplex and build this big structure behind and it can, and zoning wise, it works out. The other great thing, I mean, I think we have good community support from certainly the artistic community and that's 
hopefully because we do a good job and we help out where we can, but we're also maybe, you know, we're networking, but also my wife puts on this, like I said, my wife puts on this concert series that's pretty successful and the city likes that. It's good for the city. It's good for kind of everybody. And that's really helped uh, get the city on our side. So as we've gone through this permit process and the, the uh, city design review and things, we've actually had a lot of, a lot of really nice help from, uh, from people there who seem to be on our side and, mm-hmm. and see some value. Also, we're, we are fixing up a, a really historic home down here rather than tearing it down, which is happening a lot around town. So they seem to like that too. Mm-hmm. What about work-life balance with the family? How do you and your wife keep it going and keep it strong? The great thing about living here and having having a family and kind of being in a smaller community like this is that when yesterday my my kids are in Chinese immersion school, so my one son had a presentation that they do in Chinese and they're really fascinating because you get to go and the, you have these seven-year-olds all speaking Chinese back and forth. And so I I got to go to that. That was at three and I had to go and I just told everybody I got to go. I'm going to be gone for a half hour. And that isn't something, that, that kind of flexibility that I found in LA. It would be a different thing, of course, if I had to drive an hour. This was driving five minutes over there, being there 15 minutes and coming back. But that kind of understanding from clients is pretty easy to have. And so I feel a lot of flexibility when it comes to the regular kind of parental things, soccer games and, you know, whatever it is. But I also hardly ever work on a Sunday and I've even rarely been working Saturdays just because uh, I can usually find other engineers to cover those things. And Mm -hmm. we tend to be booked out two to three months because of that, but we're booked out two to three months. So no problem there. Wow. I suppose the ultimate reason why it works is because my wife is super independent and strong and understanding. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who have tried or would try this kind of lifestyle and it wouldn't fly with their families, but my wife, it worked well with her. So, and your wife works, my wife works from home. Yeah. She's a, she's a full-time software engineer, but she does it all from home. So frankly, the time when I stay late is also time she's working at home, but you don't like working at home. I don't like to work at home. I just can't shift my brain that fast. (laughs) I just can't do it. The kids come in. I, I mean, I can't even, I, sometimes I'll be asked to play with an artist and I've got to practice a bunch of guitar or bass or whatever. I even have a hard time just practicing at home. Like I just can't, I, there's just, there's too many things to do and I want to hang out with the kids and I hear something going on and I, I just, I'm too scatterbrained. My brain doesn't work like that. I got to get shifted into the zone and stay there, you know? So it's funny. I, with my uh, room here at home, I always feel like Mike Brady on the Brady bunch with his <laughs> right, den, right, yeah. <laughs> you know? And of course, you know, people are coming in and out of the room to talk about different, you know, sure. problems or planning things with the kids. So I don't know for some of our audience they are going to be like, what the hell is the Brady bunch? <laughs> <laughs> Probably so. So I got to ask uh, once again, back to the Mormon religion and the, the, the confines of that yeah. and how that can be sometimes at odds with things that happen in the studio. So like, you know, when you do a session and you got some folks from out of town, they're like, Hey man, let's go down to the grocery store and get a six pack on a Sunday. That ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's harder. It's certainly harder to get alcohol around here. 
you know, we just don't encounter it very much. At the same time, I have zero problem with it. And uh, this, I look at the studio regardless of what we're talking about as the client space for the time they've rented it. So, you know, that doesn't mean that we're just slaves to whatever they want to do, but you know, you paid me for the time you're here and it's your spot. So if that's, if that's what you want to do, I mean, we, if I, I suppose if somebody wanted to to smoke in the control room, which I have, I just haven't run into, I might discourage that simply just because of the life of the gear and, you know, the lasting effects, but I don't, I don't have any particular stance on it. What are your rates like? Well, it's interesting, Matt, like so far the studios around here tend to charge hourly and because the engineer tends to be tied to the studio, you know, my rate has been 85 an hour. That's included me in the studio. I don't want to work in that model anymore. I want to work from a day rate or a half day rate. And this is largely inspired by listening to John Vanderslice and getting the chance to even talk to him. The hourly thing doesn't make sense business-wise. We're, deal- we're, we're juggling five clients a day sometimes. That's five times the invoicing and five times the calls to... It doesn't make sense. You know, like we give clients the option of booking uh, two hours or even an hour for good clients and they take advantage of it because why wouldn't they? But man, it makes our heads spin by the end of the day if you have five clients and it makes it a billing nightmare. And I just think, you know we could figure out a better structure for this. I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I'm think I'm hoping to to have the studios in the range of between 3 and 400 a day and then the engineers kind of charge whatever the engineers want and I'm not even sure I've figured what out what that is for myself. I, the day rate thing or the at least the half day rate thing makes a lot more sense to me. I just haven't done it yet, but I haven't been back in business since I've wanted to do it. So I'm going to spend some time figuring that out and we'll have to make some adjustments, I'm sure. But it'll also clean things up a lot in terms of making it clear that the studio is available as a an entity separate from the engineers. And you can pick and choose from various engineers and you can hire the studio if you know how to engineer and we'll provide a great assistant for you. That 85 tends to stand and, I, and I've been um, somewhat kind of uh, stingent on it because I find it confusing for me and maybe there's a part of me that has a red flag that goes off when I think, well, this guy's rate is 65 and that guy's rate is 100. And, you know, like I I just can't juggle it all in my head. But I will say that I have discounted the studio rate when, you know, if a band says, hey, we we need four days or we want a week or we want two weeks, then we can, that's another whole ball game, you know. But if we're coming, so far, if we're coming down, uh, to record you, we have a two hour minimum and it's 85 an hour. You know, I, I would agree with you on the hour thing. Um, I, I had somebody recently email me and they were like, Hey, so we, ha- I have this group of singers and we want to get together. We want to get this done for this project. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, okay, this, this is going to be kind of involved. And then at the end of the email, and we only think it's going to take less than an hour. And <laughs> Oh man. And this, I mean, the, <laughs> just, times, just yeah. the explanation and the effort in reading that email as I got to the end, I was like, wow, um, I don't know what to say about this. So yeah. I, I actually <laughs> referred it to somebody else because I just said, hey man, look, <laughs> I think it, this would be better served with somebody who's got a facility, not somebody like me who's a freelancer. It, and quite honestly, it's just, 
like you say, the hour thing can be a real pain. It's a pain. And frankly, I think most of the time when somebody needs something done and they go like, oh, this is, this is a 45 minute thing. Like I need a tweak on this mix or something, or we need to come in and record. Almost always that ends up, they come in four times over a couple of weeks, right? So you're just kind of forcing them to like, hey, consolidate, get that stuff together, book a half day. And the truth is they will get more value for their money. When when I go through and run numbers, you know, we don't charge for lunch, say. Like we, we go away, we take that hour off. Well, eventually we're going to be charging for a day. So technically we're being paid through that hour. So the clients right now, if they if you wanted to book a full day here, uh, you know, if you want to book 10 hours, you're going to spend 850 bucks. But maybe I'll charge maybe I'll charge 350 bucks a day for my engineering and the studio's 350 bucks a day. So now it's 700 bucks for the whole day. And and so it might even lessen cost to the client, but it makes things so much more simple for us. And really I think it's more value for the client because this ramping up and ramping down process, you know, they walk in, you got 15 minutes of small talk, you got to get their hard drive loaded, all this stuff. They're chewing up hours in stuff that doesn't really benefit them. And, and if they would just come in for a half day, they'd get more value out of it. We'd get on a roll. I mean, I always tell bands that want to do an album, I was like, look, believe me, take time off from work and let's just plow through it because four weekends a month is going to just cost you a fortune. You know, we're going to have to set up the drums four times and we're going to have to sound check everything and it, we're going to all have to re- remember how to work together and it doesn't make sense. It's also a momentum thing from the band's perspective. Oh, totally. Yeah, just, I mean, just as a, as a human, like that momentum thing starts rolling and you just get better and faster. And so I think any way you can kind of eliminate those starts and stops in a schedule, whether it's on every hour or it's over weeks, I think it, it can't help but benefit everybody. And certainly it's going to benefit us. I mean, I get home at night and now I got to invoice five people, answer emails about five sessions the next day. I mean, it's brutal, you know? I'm thinking out loud here with you. You know, maybe you make it more attractive financially to book a day than it is to book an hour. Make an hour just like, you know, 150 an hour. Absolutely. No, and that and that is what, I'm, what I've been thinking too is I think – we Wes is uh, Wes the show has a studio in in North Carolina. I've done some I've done a little you know a small amount of research online, and he kind of has a a morning half day and an afternoon half day with a couple hours in between, and then and then you can book a full day, and then you can book a lockout. And to me, as I look at that, I see that little hole between the morning and the afternoon as either time for a session to go over time, which you know that will happen, or kind of the time where you say, hey, you really need this mix tweak. It's going to cost you 125 bucks an hour, but we'll get it done today. Or if you want to wait, you're welcome to book a half day next week or whatever it is, you know? Very interesting. You're the first person I've talked to from Utah with regards to studio business and makes me want to take another look at uh, Salt Lake and other areas. It's an interesting place. I I love the fact that the, the... market or whatever it is, is the community is as small as it is. I really enjoy that. I think that's one of the things I didn't love about LA. So I like knowing all the other engineers and the other studio owners. And I don't really feel, I mean, there is competition, but I don't feel competitive. And I feel like if you're good at your job, my wife's always telling me it's really great advice, which is, Hey, you're really good. Cause you know, we all get into these parts where you're like, um, gosh, am I ever going to work again? You know, the, the studios, I got, I got a week off here. Am I going to get jobs? And she says, 
you're good. If you're good, you're going to work. If anybody's working, the people that are good are going to work. And I don't really feel competitive. I really enjoy knowing the other people. I enjoy helping them if I can. I I like the fact that if I need someone to lend me a piece of gear, I can usually get it, you know, and and it seems that you have that in the Bay Area because you certainly seem to know a lot of people there. And I just love that community and and I found it. And it's it's really my favorite part about working here, the community with the musicians and with the other studio owners and engineers. It also makes me wonder, uh, as far as resources, I guess for pro audio gear, there's no local pro audio dealer, is there? Well, there is actually a local pro audio dealer um, called Performance Audio, and they stock a lot of great stuff, and they're great at wiring. And frankly, like I love their mic cables and things. They come with this lifetime warranty, and and it's a great place. The truth on the other side, though, is that if you want to go demo a pair of barefoots or something, you're not going to find it. You can order just about anything, but... It takes a lot of kind of searching on gear slots and stuff to to really kind of get into things because, you know, they don't have the market. There's like four of us here who might be interested, so they're not <laughs> going to stock it, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's a fair amount of trial and error, and luckily uh, shops are, you know, okay with shipping things and letting us try them out. But amongst the other engineers and studios, I, there's a great mic selection, you know, in the area. So we can kind of try things out. And I always love to offer, I, I just said, you know, I don't know if you know of this company called Mog Audio, but they make the EQ2 and the EQ4. Oh, yeah. So I, I know them really well and and I get to demo their stuff. They bring it over when it's in kind of its initial phases and I got to add some EQ points on the EQ2 and uh, it's, that's really fun. So uh, Travis Allen, who does a lot of their design, came over just yesterday and borrowed some distressors because he wanted to compare them to something they're working on. And I, I love that. I love knowing those people and being involved with that. And I love offering anything I have to help them too. Hmm. I just it just feels good, right? You know, it just feels good to to have a community like that. By the time this comes out, I will have come back from uh, the AES show, and you know, I love going to those things. I love seeing all the different manufacturers and talking with people and it's 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 a rush. Yeah. And and it it's the the sad truth is and I don't know why I, I mean this is largely on me but my time the 5 or 6 years I spent in LA when we moved back they just weren't super fruitful in me feeling like I developed a community. I don't know if it's I don't know what it is, but I didn't come away from LA feeling like man, I just have so many friends I'm going to miss. I worked with some great people. It wasn't quite the same sense of community. It just felt a little, I don't know, less connected for whatever reason. Maybe a little more competitive. So, yeah, it's really why I live here now. Well, obviously, it it works for you. And, and you've figured out a way to stay in business and interact with the community and make it what you need it to be. And that's I think that's most important. Well, the truth is that I spend a lot of time like kind of self-deprecating and feeling like, man, I wish I was one, even the guys, I mean, you, she's like, what am I doing? My name up against the guys you have on your show, you know, like you have so many engineers on there that are doing such big things. And I can't help but feel a little bit like this small guy who never made it. But the truth is, I mean, if you can make a living, I come in and I make a living sitting behind this little API and recording in Pro Tools and getting to listen to music all day. I mean, that's a success, right? That's, I mean, <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, just, to kind of 
respond to that. I think the spirit of my show is not necessarily big and famous. It's just those that are working and how they work, what they do, and what makes it work for them. And so you are just as welcome on the show as, as somebody like Al Schmidt. Oh, that, that sounds ridiculous to me, but that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was going to say, though, Matt, I, you didn't ask me about it, and maybe you don't know, but I was an assistant to Chad Blake on a, quite a few albums in L.A., and I know you're a big oh. Chad Blake fan. Oh, my <laughs> Wow. And and I I I thought I thought gosh if there's one thing I I need to talk to Matt about it's working with Chad Blake I I'll tell you just quickly and I don't know if this has any place on your podcast or not but maybe it's just for you when I had the chance to work at Chad Blake I was working at Sound Factory where he's done a lot of albums he had he lived in England at the time but he came over to do a Bonnie Raitt record and a Tracy Chapman record and we did some other mixing on things and I had the the same kind of myth about Chad Blake that people have, and that certainly is all over online. And and in my mind, Chad Blake was the guy, I mean, I love that, the, you know, I love those Los Lobos records. And I mean, I just love his records with, with Mitchell. So when he came in, I thought of him as Chad Blake's the guy with all the cool gadgets. He's the guy with the level locks and the Sans amps. And, you know, that's that's how you get the Chad Blake sound. You got to have that stuff. And it was really interesting for me to get to work for him. And here he came in and he plugged in Sans Amps. And we had him on buses and he plugged, he had some Spectrasonic 610s, which are made in Utah. So I'm familiar with those. Wow. And, uh, you know, he had his level locks and things. And so, so I, you know, the session starts and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to see what settings he uses. You know, I was still pretty young engineer and stuff. And it about, after about two days, it hits me. Oh, wait. This guy's just like the greatest engineer. Like this Sansamp, he throw this Sansamp right away. Like he doesn't care. You know what I mean? Like he uses those things because he's reacting to what he hears and that makes sense to him. I've tried to use the Sansamp on stuff. I can't make it sound good at all. I mean, you know, like I've got my own tools, but man, the guy just engineers the hell out of stuff. I mean, we were doing an overdub on this Bonnie Raitt record and he he says, hey, we got to set up for, I can't even remember what it was, acoustic guitar or something, you know. And I said, okay, what, you know, what mics do you want, you know? And this is another time where you're like, what, I'm, I'm going to learn something about Chad Blake, you know? What mic, of all the mics we have here at Sound Factory, what mic do you want? And he's like, well, what's close? And I'm like, oh, there's, you know, there's a 57 talkback. He's like, that's fine. You know, put it in front. I'll make something of it. And And that, you know, it's just like this mentality of like, what microphone do you want? Well, just whatever's closest will be fine. I'll turn it into something cool, you know? And I mean, it, it was just, it was really eye-opening. And it was, it's the, it's the greatest thing I took from LA, which is just realizing that anywhere you go, you're going to work with people who are unbelievable at it and people who aren't very good at it. And that's just the reality of the world <laughs> that you learn more and more as you grow up, that some people just, are amazing at their jobs and some people might not be as amazing. And that guy is just an unbelievable engineer. And he listens, you know, I mean, we did, we cut drums for that Bonnie Raitt record in a booth where the drummer had to crawl under the hi-hat to get in. That's the booth at Sound Factory. That's where they cut all the drums for all that stuff. That's where they put drums, Chad Blake and Mitchell Froome. And I mean, those drums sound unbelievable. If you went in that booth, you would not, you would not think it was fit to put a drum kit in. What record was and, that? The Bonnie Raitt record? Yeah. 
I think it was called Souls Alike. Okay. I want to say. I'll go check that I out. I mean, I mean that record sounds unreal. I mean, it just sounds unbelievable. And that's not my doing by any means. I I hope to have helped on that record as much as I could, but that's all Chad. But man, I mean, you know, you work with some people. I, I remember getting to meet uh, Ethan Johns and he had the same effect on me. Like, man, this guy is just a, the producer that for whatever reason that works for me, what he's saying, his mentality, the way he reacts, that's, that is my thing, you know? And, and Chad was the same thing. Like the low end's unreal. And, it's like, it's not this level lock, <laughs> you know? Like, I remember one time asking him, tell me about the level locks. How did that become, you know, a thing? And he said, well, I, I used to go out to this swap meet. Gosh, I want to say it was out in the Palm Desert or something. But he said, I used to go out to this swap meet all the time. And one day this guy had a pile of these things and they were 25 bucks each. And I thought, oh, I might as well buy some of those and see what those do. He said, I'd never buy one for what they're charging for them now. <laughs> You know, it's like, I don't know whether or not that's really true, but it shows his mentality about it. Like this notion that like, hey, to be a great engineer, I got to spend 700 bucks on a level lock. That's not what Chad Blake would do. He'd go, well, let me just figure something else out that's cool, you know? And it puts the gear into perspective. I love gear, no doubt about it. But the truth is like, it's, it's when you sit in front of the speakers and you listen to something, if it sounds right, you go with it. If it doesn't, you move the mic or, you know, you do whatever you got to do, change, swap out the guitar amp. And it's your, you know, it's your aesthetic and you're reacting to it that is really what you're bringing to the table. It's not, no one's ever asked me what microphones we have. He's, I have them because I like He them. is the one guy that uh, I want to go see it mix with the masters. Oh, I know it. I know it. It was, I mean, I got to sit and watch him track and mix like three or four albums. And I guess I just thought, I can't wait to see behind the curtain and learn all of these tricks. And then the only trick was, hey, Chad Blake's a better engineer than you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, go ahead That's and buy crazy. all that stuff. You won't be able to do it. <laughs> well, I'm out of time and I got to, I mean, actually, it's an early dismissal for my kids this week. It's parent teacher conference. Oh, I know how that is. So uh, I'll have to let you go. But of course, uh, really great to talk to you. And I really, uh, would love to catch up with you again, maybe uh, in six months. That would be awesome. I'd love that. And I, and I, yeah, I I love the podcast. You're doing you're doing awesome stuff. I'm so glad, so glad that I found it. Well, uh, good luck to you. I hope the building process is uh, as you want it to be. <laughs> so do I. Well, I'll send you this audio and I'll get that bio to you tonight or tomorrow night for sure. Okay, sounds great. Thanks. Have a good day. All right, you too. Chat with you later. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Scott Wiley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, Provo, Utah. Who would have thunk? But you know what? Everybody needs audio. So doesn't matter the size of the town. Somebody's got to record. So there it is. Well, let's uh, say our thanks to everybody. Thanks to Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams for your help on the show. And, of course, our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Audio Technica. And, of course, thank you for listening. I appreciate your time. And, as usual, of course... Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear 
including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. (laughs) 